Welcome to the Erectile Dysfunction Radio Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to educating and empowering men to address erectile dysfunction, improve confidence, and enhance the satisfaction in their relationships. This podcast is brought to you by ErectionIQ.com. Learn more at ErectionIQ.com. Welcome to the Erectile Dysfunction Radio Podcast. I am Mark Goldberg, Certified Sex Therapist. I am deeply passionate about working with men like you to help resolve their ED. Today we are joined by Dr. Robert Siegel. Dr. Siegel has been on the podcast in the past. If you haven't heard that episode about erectile dysfunction and low testosterone, I encourage you to listen to that. Dr. Siegel is the treating urologist for the patient who we are in a four-part series about. So just a reminder uh, for listeners who heard the first episode, the patient developed erectile dysfunction and avoidance of intimacy, as well as some physiological reactions to masturbation and ejaculation. In order to address the erectile dysfunction and avoidance of intimacy, we needed to understand what was happening or causing the physical symptoms after ejaculation, which we were hypothesizing was a top driver for avoidance and interference with erections. I sent the patient to Dr. Siegel to further assess these unique symptoms and for medical guidance on how to proceed with psychogenic treatment, in particular, whether this patient could safely engage in sexual activity. What we want to understand today is some of the considerations in assessing this patient's presentation. Before we jump into that, however, one of the features of this case was that the patient spent a lot of time from, I think, the first time you had seen him and referred him to therapy until he actually went ahead and made the call. So I want to know just in your experience, how common is it that you'll refer a patient for sex therapy or mental health therapy, and they may take months or even years until they go ahead and follow through? I think that's a great question. And in my experience, um, I, I you know perhaps a better question would be, what proportion of patients do I send to you or other psychotherapists? So, so what proportion of men actually go for the, the referral? And I think it's actually a low number. I think it, there's probably a, a lot to do with it. Um, I think in this day and age, people kind of want a very rapid solution. They want an easy solution. They want to take a pill and, and kind of be done with it. And I think that you know, for patients who, who need psychotherapy for psychogenic ED or sexual dysfunction, it's very often not a quick fix. And so I, I kind of warn the patient ahead of time that you have to be committed to the therapy or else it's, it's not going to work. If, if the patient firstly doesn't perceive that there's a psychogenic component to their dysfunction, then I think, frankly, it'll be a waste of time for them. They will go in with perhaps some preconceived notions about what psychotherapy is. And if they're not fully committed, they might blow it off or, or they, they might not take it seriously and then they're not going to benefit from it. So that's kind of what I warn people uh, even going in when I'm making the referral is that you need to be committed to this uh, or else it's not going to help you. Or if you don't think this is your problem, it's probably going to be a waste of your time. So that being said, uh, I, I refer a lot of men and, and they accept the, uh, the, the referral. And then I, 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 my particular practice is I want to see the patient back usually within about three months. 
again, because for me to see them back in a week or two, they're not going to really make much progress, assuming they they make the call right away. Um, and it's not uncommon that I don't see them at the three-month mark, and it may be six months or nine months or even a year before I'm seeing them back. And, and then they tell me, oh, you know, I, I hooked up with Dr. Goldberg and, and things are, are going well. So I, I would say it's, it's not uncommon that there is a delay um, or the patient comes back to see me when the medical options have failed, and then I'm resending them to, to you or, or, you know, providing your credentials again. So Dr. Siegel, this patient was seen by you about 18 months prior to him reaching out to me. At the time that you saw him, did he present with uh, the additional symptoms of dizziness, it seems like some panic, fainting spells, or did he just mention that he was experiencing a sexual dysfunction? When I had initially seen him, uh, the, the primary complaint was uh, erectile dysfunction related that he, I mean, the, the, his words, not mine, related either to his anxiety or the treatment of his anxiety. Um, he, he, he was on certain uh, anti-anxiety and antidepressant medications. So there was no comment about the, uh, the other symptoms at that time. And that makes sense because I think that he had not linked the two really together um, until a a couple more incidents had taken place, I think, between the time that you initially referred him and uh, when he actually reached out. So now more broadly speaking, a patient is reporting a set of symptoms, in this case, dizziness, shortness of breath, fainting spells, after masturbation, and other forms of sexual activity. What are some of the possible areas of exploration or explanations that come to mind? So, I, I mean, th this is not something that, that I see very commonly. Um, and, and so the, the, the kind of more broad uh, issues that I'm at least considering, um, could, could he have underlying anxiety? And in, in this case, uh, the, the patient, uh, you know, reported to me that he had a history of it. And I, I, I kind of defer the, the kind of the, the further evaluation of that to, to someone like you to try to tease out kind of what, what, what about his anxiety is, is triggering his sexual dysfunction and, and kind of what manifestations thereof uh, result. So when I had seen him back, um, this was actually after ha having a discussion with you. Um, and yes, it was about a year from when I had initially seen him. You know, you had mentioned that the symptoms to me that again he had the patient had not noted himself, and it it, it led me to think about this rare phenomenon called post orgasmic illness syndrome, which is something that you know I I I, I did know about. I had seen possibly one patient uh, who had some of the symptoms thereof, and I've I've been in practice eight years now. I did a two year fellowship uh, in in sexual medicine, so uh, you know I've been doing this for ten years. So the fact that I've only seen one prior patient with this kind of highlights how, how rare it is, but um, that, that, that was also something that, that came to mind. Is there any other possibility that would cross your mind other than anxiety or this, what seems like a rare post-orgasmic illness syndrome? Is there anything else to rule out? Um, I would say that urologically, um, there, there aren't really any other definitive tests that, that I could think of, um, you know, just thinking about what I have in my armamentarium or is there certain lab work that, that might, uh, contribute, uh, in particular, uh, to this, 
I mean, certainly someone who has, you know, issues with ejaculation or orgasm, checking a serum testosterone could be uh, pertinent with the symptoms that, that he, he was reporting kind of dizziness, shortness of breath associated with ejaculation. I mean, I, I didn't think that that was all that germane, you know, certain imaging tests, uh, you know, for example, evaluation of the testicles or evaluation of the urethra. I, I didn't think that it, it would uh, really contribute much in, in this otherwise young, healthy male that there was nothing kind of dangerous that I was worried about. So I, I didn't think that there would be other tests that would be a high yield for me. Got it. And I think that's what you shared with me as we were consulting back and forth. And I was looking for that guidance in terms of whether um, I could proceed forward with some exposure exercises uh, safely with the patient. Mm -hmm. Now this patient is in his early thirties and you know, what I'm gathering is what seemed um, the most likely culprit to you after evaluation is some underlying anxiety. Is that correct? Absolutely. Uh, and, and again, just to reiterate, he, he had reported to me his history of anxiety. And so, so I knew it was there and that certainly reinforced it for me. Um, I mean, if, if I see a patient who comes in with no prior medical history Sometimes you get a sense that there's underlying anxiety just based on, you know, how they interact with me or how they, how they respond to questions or, uh, or that sort of thing. But in this case, you know, that, that was a big, uh, kind of clue for me. In other words, you're not necessarily diagnosing anxiety, but this patient had a pre-existing diagnosis, which really indicated a strong possibility that what was happening, uh, was this underlying anxiety. Yes. And I mean, in a similar situation, if I suspect that there's um, anxiety that is undiagnosed, I would typically refer the patient either to you or to their primary care provider to determine the next steps in, in diagnosis or, or treatment for that. Dr. Siegel, can we go back to this condition called post-orgasmic illness syndrome? Now, I know it's rare, but I think our listeners are going to be interested to just learn about this a little bit further. So can you describe what exactly this post-orgasmic illness is? Sure. So this is a, a condition, and, and, and I, I reiterate there, there's not much known about this. If, if you look at in the, in the medical literature, uh, there are not many studies on this. Uh, there, there's, in fact, only one author who has kind of widely written on it. Uh, other articles are more like review articles, that sort of thing. Um, but it, it's basically considered or thought to be, um, essentially an allergy to, uh, something in the ejaculate that can result in very certain signs or symptoms. And these are, are characterized into different categories or, or what are called clusters, but it, in essence, patients can develop these symptoms, um, at times immediately, like within seconds of ejaculation. And that's whether they're active with a partner or doing self-stimulation, um, or it may take several hours to develop, and it may last several days before, before they abate. So there are different presentations. And what we're going to come back, I think, in a couple moments to that time delay, because that was a feature when I was working with this patient. You mentioned that this is a reaction to the ejaculate. Is there like something particular that we know of in the ejaculate that causes this type of reaction? Um, again, I, I don't know that it that it's absolutely known. Um, I, I know that there have been some 
allergy studies uh, in, in men who have this condition where they're basically, I mean, a, like a skin allergy test, for example, um, is performed with the men's own uh, uh, sperm and, and they don't react. So it's not necessarily an allergy to sperm. It, it, it's something else uh, in the ejaculate. There's other thoughts that it might be um, an autoimmune disorder. Um, so, uh, again, I, I'd say most of our knowledge on this condition is, is kind of early. So if a man utilizes a condom, would this theoretically alleviate the problem? Is it the exposure to the ejaculate or is there something also being set off internally before the ejaculation happens? No, that's a good question. Uh, I mean, my understanding is that even with a condom, there it would still be the risk of of the the resultant reaction. So yeah, I, I don't think it's it's the condom itself that would protect against the symptoms. Okay, so how is an allergy like this treated? I know you mentioned that this is not common and this is not something that you are treating even on an annual basis. But uh, if somebody does have this condition, um, how is this managed? So, I mean, as you can imagine, that this can be a very difficult thing to manage because, I mean, people are associating these kind of very either bothersome or at times very terrible or, or intolerable symptoms with what's supposed to be a very pleasurable activity. So, um, I mean, notwithstanding the fact that men can have, you know, bad uh, psychological kind of responses or sequelae as a, as a result, I think that the treatments that have been most often attempted would, would be anti-allergy medications such as antihistamines. There have been other treatments tried like with SSRIs uh, or benzodiazepines. So again, these are more related to depression or anxiety or kind of psychological issues. So I, I think the mainstay would be uh, anti-allergy treatments like antihistamines or possibly even corticosteroids. Now, is it also safe to assume that this condition does not pose a threat to a person's actual health? Or is it possible that in, again, some rare subset of this population, that this allergic reaction could be dangerous? I'm not aware of any reported cases of uh, like anaphylaxis, for example. But you know, certainly what, like one of the clusters, uh, that is associated with this could be, it, it's, it's, uh, broken down into what's called the throat cluster. So you can get dry mouth or coughing or sore throat or, or voice hoarseness. So uh, it, there's no evidence necessarily of like respiratory distress as a result, but, uh, um, I, I would say, uh, it's, it's possible to get early symptoms that could be concerning. Although again, just to reiterate, I'm not aware that uh, major risk to the patient is, is likely. In other words, it could be felt in the throat, but you're saying you're not aware of any reports of this becoming you know, life-threatening. Exactly. Okay. So coming back to, to this patient. So he was reporting a delay between the time of ejaculation and the onset of symptoms, sometimes for more than 24 hours. Mm -hmm. He also has some specific patterns of experiencing symptoms after overexertion or masturbating multiple days in a row. Could this pattern be allergic or does this lean way more in the direction of this being psychosomatic or anxiety driven? I mean, to me, just based on, on this description, I, I would still favor the, the post-orgasmic illness syndrome 
Um, and, and again, if, if we're assuming that the, there is an underlying allergy component to it, then, then I would favor that. In this case, was this patient encouraged or if requiring prescription medication, I think most allergy medications are over the counter. Mm -hmm. Was he, uh, suggested to utilize a antihistamine or some other allergy medication? Yes. So my recommendation uh, at his last uh, visit with me was to try exactly that over-the-counter antihistamines approximately one hour prior to sexual activity slash master, uh, you know, ejaculation. And to do that before I would uh, plan for any more costly or, or more involved treatments. And what I'm gathering is, you know, based on some of our, our, earlier conversation, it still was your overarching belief that a lot of this was driven psychologically, but this was a relatively uh, safe, just in case type of intervention. Is that correct? Yes. So again, I I think sometimes it can be hard to tease out, uh, you know, what kind of, what degree of contribution is from the, um, the, the, the underlying anxiety versus if, if there's something else going on. And so, I, I mean, as, as mentioned, I knew that there was anxiety uh, underlying here and, and I think that was a major issue. And that's, uh, that was the main reason why I sent him to you in the first place. But then when I heard of these other symptoms, I, I did fe- feel that uh, this uh, entity, this rare entity was um, at least plausible and, um, and so I figured, you know, th- 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 this is the kind of thing where we don't really know much. The, the proposed treatment is, is not that risky. And so I think there's kind of a, a, a high reward, low risk type outcome. If he tries the antihistamines, for example, and he's better, great. Um, if not, then at least we've, we can kind of rule, you know, potentially rule that out as, as a treatment. And yes, we may consider other uh, more involved allergy treatments, but at least we've, uh, we've tried it uh, so as to try to give him some alleviation. Got it. So, so it's, you know, there as a option and uh, a potential rule out, but you're saying it's high risk, uh, sorry, high reward, low risk um, for him to be utilizing um, this medication. Now, is this taken in advance of sexual activity or is this taken post? No, I, I recommended it to, for him to, to take it prior to uh, ejaculation because, uh, and, and I even said up to an hour before, um, because uh, you would in theory want uh, the, the, the medication on board at the time of the exposure. Um, and so I, I just fear that if, if he took it after then yes, it may curtail some of the symptoms, but it was my feeling that if he, if he takes it before that's kind of maximizing the, the, the potential treatment effect. And I think that the patient also can benefit or in this situation benefits from knowing that they have, uh, the medication already in them to help reduce some of the anxiety, certainly when it comes to the avoidance, because, if in fact it is allergic, they now can more comfortably go ahead and break that avoidance cycle and take those risks, knowing that there is already an antihistamine in their system to help reduce, if not eliminate those symptoms. I think it serves multiple purposes uh, for this patient. Yes. I, I mean, I, I agree. Obviously, when, when I prescribe something, I'm, I'm thinking about you know the potential benefit 
urologically, maybe I should consider more of the, 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 the psychological impact of, of the treatments I'm providing. And, and, and it may even go without saying that a, a patient who, you know, is, is bothered by whatever problem they have, giving them the treatment not only potentially treats the, the, the issue, but it, it may help alleviate some of the underlying anxiety associated with, with the issue. So that's a hundred percent. I totally agree with that. And I agree that, that I think that that's applies far more broadly than just in the, in the case of post-orgasmic illness or a potential allergy, certainly uh, in other areas of, um, or in other treatment avenues of sexual dysfunction. I think that also holds true that when, person knows that they have something to empower them. It also helps to reduce the anxiety, break an avoidance cycle, and help them to move forward both medically, physically, and psychologically. So Dr. Siegel, if we were going to summarize your findings with this patient and where you would, I guess, either tell me it's safe or tell me what to avoid, how would you kind of just summarize that for us? So, I I mean, from my perspective, um, I, I don't view any you know, intervention that, that you propose, uh, to be harmful, frankly. Um, and, uh, so I, I would have no reservation about you doing, you know, what, whatever you wanted to do in terms of exposure therapy, because again, I think, uh, unfortunately what I, I tell some of my patients and I'm a surgeon, right. So I'd say this definitely holds true for what I do, no pain, no gain. Right. So I'm kind of, purposely injuring the patient or, or harming the patient in order, in order to, uh, you know, for the greater good so that they benefit long-term. So uh, I could see how that could apply here. You know, the, the patient unfortunately may have to uh, step out of his comfort zone a little bit, so to speak, in order to kind of uh, grapple with, with these issues, but in the long run, hopefully he can break through and, and he'll be, he'll be uh, the better for it. Yeah. And your findings, though, were that it was safe to go ahead and engage in those challenging exposure exercises, even if it did elicit some of these uh, symptoms or potential allergic reaction. There was nothing from your findings that indicated a medical reason to avoid or to reduce uh, sexual activity. Correct? Sir, sir, that is absolutely correct. Um, I mean, and I think, look, we, we, we have the evidence that, I mean, the patient has presented with these symptoms. So he's already had the, the adverse effects of, of what he's experiencing with ejaculation. And, uh, you know, understandably, they're uncomfortable and, 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 and he wants to avoid them. Um, but they haven't resulted in any, any long-term harm thus far. So that there would be no reason to, to, to be worried or suspect that, uh, he would have any worse reaction uh, to a, a subsequent ejaculation. With your medical guidance, we we were able to proceed forward with exposure and treatment, and we will talk more about that in um, an episode uh, in the coming weeks, where we will summarize how treatment proceeded forward and what the results were. Dr. Siegel, thank you very much for joining us on this episode. I think this is very informative to our listeners. All right. Well, thank you again very much. If you listen to this podcast regularly, you know there is a huge mental component that goes into achieving an erection. Mark Goldberg, the certified sex therapist who hosts this podcast, felt as though this was a very underserved topic of education in men's health. That's why he designed Beyond the Little Blue Pill, the thinking man's guide to addressing ED. The course is designed to educate and fundamentally help you change the way you 
think about erections. Check it out at erectioniq.com front slash course. You can explore three modules of this course completely free. See if there's something in there that can help you. erectioniq.com slash course and you can learn more there. Thanks for listening to the Erectile Dysfunction Radio Podcast. For more information on today's topic and understanding how the mind impacts erectile dysfunction, please visit ErectionIQ.com.